Welcome to Muse Views, the podcast for the Muse community about the Muse community. Muse is a nonprofit education networking group for users of the Meditech electronic health record system. Here on our podcast, we chat with healthcare IT folks about ideas, opportunities, strategies, and solutions to improve work life experiences and share views you can use. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, TJ Temple. Thank you for joining us today. On the podcast today, I'm pleased to welcome our first physician guest. Dr. John Tollerson is a family practice physician at Logan Health located in Kalispell, Montana. At Logan, Dr. Tollerson serves as the Chief Medical Information Officer. Over the years, he and his IT team at Logan have been on the cutting edge of implementing Meditech's newest technologies and sharing their valuable information with the Muse community. Please welcome to the podcast, Dr. John Tollerson. Hi, TJ. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for your time. Tell us a little bit more about what's going on at Logan Health and the community you serve there. Sure. So we're located in the northwest corner of Montana, right near Glacier National Park, which is a a beautiful part of the world. If you've never had a chance to come see Glacier, it is gorgeous. So I'm the CMIO of Logan Health, as you mentioned before, and we serve the Flathead Valley and in the outsourced or outside regions therein. Logan Health, the primary hospital is in Kalispell, but we also have hospitals in Whitefish, and Conrad and Cutbank, and we'll be working with the folks in Shelby as well, as well as we host several other hospitals, including ones in Libby and Ronan, and soon we'll be working with other hospitals outside as well, just mostly as a regional healthcare center. So what we're doing in IT is a lot. That's very much a loaded question because I just finished a talk with Meditech before I came on this podcast, and you know, they're asking us, you know, what are you doing here with, you know, your iPhones and your your Apple Health? And what are you doing here with these different registries and business and clinical analytics? And the answer is a lot. And sometimes it's a challenging to keep track between centralized scheduling and Apple and iHealth configurations and getting those into the hands of patients and physicians. And so the answer is a lot, but let's break that down. Right now, we went live with Meditech Expanse in the ambulatory setting in 2017. And then over the last several years, we've moved it into all of our clinics, including our outreach clinics. And then September of 2020, we took the Expanse live in our hospitals, which has been a really nice move to integrate everyone to a web-based platform. And then our next obvious big move is going to be to move all of our nurses onto that web-based platform, and then we can move our oncologist onto a web-based platform. Right now, they're using web ambulatory, but not the oncology module, which they would really like to move into for that integrated piece as far as ordering chemotherapy and things like that. The other big-ticket items on our list for this year is Whitefish goes live in May, which will be great to have an integrated record with the Whitefish Hospital, with the Whitefish ER, and the Whitefish Clinics. That's something I was just talking to the hospitalists last night, and then some of the ER docs, and we're all very much looking forward to having a larger, integrated, seamless record throughout our organization, whether it's here in Kalispell, whether it's in Whitefish, and then, of course, the other hospitals we talked about as well. That's going to be Conrad and Cutbank and other small critical access hospitals, to be able to share that information for patient transfers is is huge, not only for our ER docs and our hospitals, our hospitalists, as previously mentioned, but also for our surgeons and our care coordinators. And then when patients go back home, how the primary care docs and the, the pediatricians and ER docs access that information. 
That's going to be huge for patient care. It's going to be huge for transitions. We're very much looking forward to it. So we've got a full dance card for the next several months with hospital go-lives and clinic go-lives. And also we're going to help our littles, our pediatric patients who are transitioning in in obstetrics to newborn care and those who need to be transferred for NICU care. Uh, We have the NICU here as a regional facility and uh, lots of kiddos come our way. And it's super nice to be able to have our pediatricians from those outlying facilities have access to the NICU documentation and then being able to continue that continuity of care for our vulnerable pediatric patients. And then, of course, our children's hospital. Again, not to go on and on, TJ, but it's super nice to have a centralized children's hospital at Montana Children's, Mm -hmm. right, and have patients sent there and then patients going back as a practicing doc, as you know, a guy who takes care of pediatric patients. It's so nice to be able to, to send a patient to a children's hospital and then to have that patient come back and here are the clear instructions, right? Here is the follow-up plan. Patients who may need other services that weren't necessarily needed to be addressed acutely, but needs more of a chronic care, needs sleep studies, you know, needs other potential lab work or imaging or follow-ups. And so, you know, as a primary care doc, I do a lot of coordinating of care. How I coordinate care is with information and having that information in a concise, centralized database. I don't have to go looking in other databases to try to piece this patient's story together. I got to tell you, that's nice. So integration is the key. Everyone knows this. This is not a secret. And we are looking forward to integrating with all of our outpatient facilities, all of our critical access hospitals, and our partners. So looking forward. Absolutely. The Whitefish facility you mentioned, is that a critical access hospital? It is a critical access hospital, yeah. They do quite a bit, you know, ER care. They do quite a bit with their ambulatory care. They do quite a bit with their surgical care and their obstetrics. So these critical access hospitals are pivotal to the patients they serve in those communities. And that's one thing that you might miss in a larger facility is how essential those critical access hospitals are to the health and well-being of those communities and being able to support them with specialty care and getting those patients back into the hands of the physicians who care for them in their outpatient settings, vital, absolutely vital. Absolutely. And what system are they running now? Uh, varies. Some systems have been sunset, like Paragon. Some are older versions of Meditech. One is still on paper. So we, you know, we look forward to helping them no matter what their needs are. Right. But yeah, we look forward to one database. It's so interesting. When I first began implementing EMRs, it was very much the dreaded EMR transition from paper to EMR because the computer doesn't work like paper does. And now I have these outlying hospitals saying, please, when can we go live? As soon as we can. It's funny, when we were implementing clinics, this was a few years ago, the surgeons came in, the general surgeons came and said, we want to go on this as soon as possible because they wanted the integration with the hospital. Now I have hospitals asking me, when can I go on? No, please let us go sooner. It's quite a difference, quite a transition in the last decade from Oh dear God, I have to go live. To please, dear God, let me go live. It's different. It's 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 kind of mind blowing. Absolutely. Do you think that is because of new grads coming out and they're used to the EHRs, or is this due to the fact that providers have seen the success of an integrated EHR and they want to be part of that? 
I definitely think it's option B because the surgeons that came to me initially weren't necessarily, you know, new grads. They were the ones coming and saying, we want the information, right? We, we need the information that's easy to find in one place. So I don't have to go looking or bouncing around to try and piece together this patient's story. You know, I, I've lived that life. I've lived the best of breed, shall we say, where, you know, you have five or six different systems and none of them completely talk or integrate with each other. And you're having to bounce from system A to B to C to D to try to figure out what is the story with this patient? You know, the patient would go see cardiology or go see surgery or go to the ER and, well, you got to find what meds are they on? Do they have an allergy? Is there an issue? What's the follow-up plan? And, and again, as a primary care doc, that's like 95% of what I do is coordination of care for chronic disease management is trying to figure out what happened and what the plan is and how I can help the patient move forward with this plan, right? And, and again, and, and that brings the patient portal into this. Not again, you know, I know we're podcasting, so sidebars are sort of a part of life, but the patient portal, like I said before, I got off with Meditech. I mean, we have 53,000 active patient portals. Wow. You know, we had 60,000 from January to now, people who used our portal. There were portal instances. So 60,000 patient portal instances, 53,000 active portal patient users in a valley that's 110,000, wow. right? I mean, people want the data. I want the data because I'm a doc, right? And I, I got to use it. Sure. Patients want the data. Patients want to know, what were my test results? Especially, again, in the age of COVID. Now, thankfully, we begin to see some light with this last COVID surge. We're beginning to come out of that fog, which is wonderful. Everybody get their vaccines, but patients love to see that data, right? They, they, they love to see when's my next visit, when's my next appointment? Because we have a lot of patients, again, we're in Montana. We have a lot of patients who travel. We have a lot of snowbirds. We have a lot of folks going to Canada. They want to know, what was my last COVID test? When was my last COVID vaccine? When was my last A1C? Hey, I'm headed down to, you know, Phoenix or headed down to Scottsdale or whatnot or Arizona for the winter. Let me take my record with me. And they have it. And these are folks... And everyone thinks, oh, the technology, it's a youth game. It is not. <laughs> you know, I had a 91-year-old patient the other day showing me pictures of her newest great-great-granddaughter, mm -hmm. right, wow. on her phone. And she <laughs> has her phone right there. And she has her patient record right there because she had a question about one of her medicines. Now, this says I take this every night, but I only take it as needed. I said, you're right. We will make that correction on <laughs> the charge. So we need to debunk that mythos, right? That only the young folks are going to use patient portals and only they're only interested in this integrated data. They are not. It is the patients that utilize the system, right? Who want their healthcare data. Absolutely. Well, that, that's quite some impressive numbers there. That sounds like over 50% of your population is using the portal, which is pretty shocking and wonderful. We definitely have a lot of travelers. Sure. A lot of patients come outside the Valley to come here, right? A lot of folks visit this area. It's beautiful area. A lot of folks from Canada coming across the border, right? A lot of folks living in Arizona. So, you know, I'd love to say that 50% of the Valley is on it. Right. Uh, that may be a bit misleading, but I do want to say we have a lot of portal users and a lot of people want access to this data. And the more integrated, the more folks are going to want it. Uh, when we were once upon a time on disparate systems and all of our clinics had their own version of the database and we tried turning on the portals to meet meaningful use measures, what a disaster. What a disaster. Because med lists never matched up appointments. Well, if I wanted to see my cardiology appointment, I have to log on to their portal. Well, if I want to see the primary care doc, I want to log. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. And again, I've lived that life. 
And I still have some who would say, well, but this system had this nice feature and this system had this nice feature. I'm telling you, I am telling you, I've lived that life. The integrated life is the way to go. Absolutely. And for the portal product, I assume you're using the Meditech portal, correct? Yeah. 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 Great. Meditech for the portal, Meditech for our virtual visits. And I got to say, that's been nice. That's push button easy. It's easy for my patients. It's easy for me as an end user, you know, Dr. Andy Burchett, I'll give Andy a plug. He at HIMSS talked about their reduced no-show rate mm. for portal visits, which is fantastic information. Yeah. And after I heard that, I thought, you know, we should look into that as well. And then I was sort of running the numbers in my head. And I do quite a bit of virtual visits because several of my patients are either homebound or live outside the valley. And I got to say, I haven't had a single no-show any of wow. my portal visits, which is I mean, that boggles the mind to think, no, no shows. That's saying something. So kudos to Dr. Burchett for bringing that to my attention as far as <laughs> looking at that data. From that conversation, we're going to do a, how many patient visits have we seen that have been canceled or no-showed from a virtual standpoint? Right. And collect that data and see if we can help people who, for whatever reason, can't get in. And again, in the age of covid that was a very valid thing. That we had a lot of patients who simply did not want to come into an office for that exposure or who were driving great distances. And again, we, you know, we have winter here, which you know might be a factor for some people not to be able to come in. And we actually tell our elderly patients, listen, the roads are bad. Do not come in. Call my office. We will get you set up. And uh, it's push button easy. That's very interesting. It seems like there's so many benefits from that. I mean, not only the efficiency of your time and the provider's time, but financially as well. And then the patient gets the care that they need and they're not waiting an extra week or two weeks to get that diagnosis or that med refill or whatever. So that's a very interesting point. I'm glad Dr. Burchette brought that up. And it's from his, from Andy's perspective, he was talking about it from a behavioral health standpoint. Again, if you think about the impact of COVID that it had on a behavioral health community, right? Being able to get help timely, but also it's a lot for some patients if you're in a state to get out of bed, to come to a doctor's office, to make an appointment, to follow up with an appointment, those steps may be quite challenging or quite daunting for a subset of the population. And then if you think about living out, living rural, living remotely, trying to come in and meet those appointments when you don't feel well or having challenges economically with you know getting into the doctor's office or getting a ride to the doctor's office, there's a lot of factors there. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your position as CMIO there. You've been in that position for over 10 years. Am I correct? That's correct. 2011, I took this job on. 2011. Wow. The reason I bring that up is because that shows a lot that Logan is thinking forward in the space of IT. CMIOs were you know, not even really a common thing at that time, to my knowledge, and many facilities still don't have a CMIO. So kudos to the organization for putting you in that position and being forward thinking like that. Yeah, I'll, I'll be sure to tell my CMO, hey, good job with doing that. I, I don't know. Uh, in the beginning, it was just sort of like, we need someone who will help us get all these clinics onto an EHR. And that was sort of the initial role was we need someone who can go and talk to all these different clinics and all these different docs and help. And, you know, in the beginning, it was very much a helping role and a even somewhat of a training role and an elbow support role, which it still is to a degree. But now it's sort of morphed into more of a governance role, definitely working with executive leadership to help 
with strategic decisions, working a lot with vendor relations. That's been something that's been big. And then, of course, as you say, in any leadership role, you got to have some long vision. You have to be looking at where do we want to be? What technology do we need to get us there? And so that's definitely been a change in the job role from initially getting people onto one system to governing, okay, what do we do with all these people? What are the rules around problem lists? What are the rules around basic functionality? Do we need order sets? Who's reviewing order sets? What's missing? Meeting with your fellow colleagues to go over issues, to make lists of issues, and then following up with the vendor and advocating for, you know, for that, and then being a part of their governance. So in May, I go to the Physician Advisory Council to say, here are our concerns. Here are our concerns from a clinic perspective or clinics, plural perspective, ambulatory, specialty clinics. Here are our concerns from a hospital. Here are our ER concerns. And then bigger picture, here are our patient transition concerns. How do we help patients who are moving from the hospital to the clinic? How do we help our patients who transition out and then come back to our facilities? So the role has definitely changed over the years. The challenges are unique. I'd never have a dull moment. I never think to myself, well, what am I going to do today? That's right. never a problem for me, which is good. I like to be busy. I like challenges. That's why I took on this role. And I did it to help my colleagues because when I got my first exposure to EMRs, I thought, okay, John, you've got two options here. Option A, you can stick your head in the ground or put your feet in the ground and say, no, I'm not going to do this. Or option B, you can embrace this. And I chose option B largely because I realized this is the future and there's a lot of possibilities to be able to have the data at your fingertips. It's so funny. Everyone loves packs, you know, the, the ability of the image viewers to see images. They love it. And could you imagine not having packs? And now it's the same with EMRs. Could you imagine not being able to, I was on call on Monday and Tuesday, and you know, you get a call. Could you imagine not being able to pull up your iPad and find the patient and go, okay, here's your med list. Let's talk about why your potassium is 2.9, which you know, let's talk about why you're having these issues and, and what we can do to help. The role has changed in a lot of good ways. And then, of course, you know, we got through meaningful use and we did CPC Plus at my institution. And now we're working with ACOs. And, and what is that role? And what is the role of quality? Because quality and IT, I mean, they are absolutely interwoven and getting the appropriate information at the point of care at the visit times to help our docs make these decisions and to help our reporting structures and to help our population health and getting the tools to do that. I mentioned BCA earlier. We also talk about registries and how we track patient data from a global perspective and how we help our patients who maybe have fallen off, you know, haven't had a visit or haven't had an A1C if they're diabetic or, you know, haven't had a wellness check or a Medicare wellness. There's a lot of services that patients could be taking advantage of that if they knew about them, and then so we need to kind of help them, okay, here are the things that you're due for, here are the things you should be thinking about as a patient. And patients have really responded well to us looking out for them. They expect that to a degree, but it's nice when we're proactive. It's nice when we're reaching out to them versus them reaching out to us say, hey, I'm due for my mammogram. We're now calling them. We're reaching out to them via the portal, via email, via calling, via patient reminders, patient connect, et cetera. You're due for this. And it helps them to take charge of their care. So it's very much a symbiotic relationship with patients and providers. 
And it's absolutely, you know, technology has helped bridge a lot of those gaps. I guess the short answer is the role has changed. It's, <laughs> a, it's a good role. I think any institution who is looking to make any move forward as far as integration, patient engagement, quality, and not to mention cybersecurity, you know, TJ, we should have a whole nother separate conversation about cybersecurity right. because that right. that was something that in this role, when I first signed on, you know, uh, 11 years ago, cybersecurity, you know, where it used to be a once a month, someone knocking at our door, now it's there, it's full on, it's something that you have to dedicate an entire wing of your IT to doing. And I think that if you, whichever vendor you're working with, work with them on, okay, what protections do you have? Do you want to host yourself? Do you want to be cloud hosted? I mean, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of benefits there from that perspective. But cybersecurity was something that we had to learn and learn very quickly. Right. So taking your years of experience being a CMIO, what would you tell an organization that's contemplating implementing a CMIO position or perhaps a physician that's considering taking a CMIO position? Sure. The first thing I want to set out if I were talking to an organization is what's your goals, right? Have a well-defined script. What are you looking for this individual to do? Yeah, when I first took this job, I wrote my own job description. And thanks to Google, it worked out. But it was very much, what do you want me to do? And what are you looking for as an organization? We're looking for, have a goal in mind. We want you to integrate our clinics. We want you to integrate our hospital and clinics. We want you to integrate our ER with our hospital, our hospital with our clinics. We want to move EMRs. We want to, or we want to go through a selection process. It's interesting. I talked to so many different hospitals who go through these selection processes without a CMIO. And I think, dear God, what are you thinking? Because what happens is, and this happens to every organization and every poor CIO or CMO out there has had this asked of them, hey, in addition to your CMO role, why don't you also join the selection committee for an IT or, you know, for an EMR? And it's like, no, please do not do that to your poor CMOs because it's so much work to put on them. And they are a fish out of water if they're trying to figure out which EMR is going to fit their needs. And then not to mention budgeting and time and FTEs and other resources. I mean, and then you got to find a consultant to help you. And it's that's a lot of work. So what I would say to an organization is define your goals. Now, if I were talking to a colleague and I have a colleague who says, you know, I'm interested in informatics and I think I would like to get into something like that. I would tell them to utilize their resources. What are they looking to do? Are they still looking to practice, which I would encourage every CMIO to still do? Why? Because if I'm pushing the buttons, when I go out to my colleagues and tell them to push the buttons, it's much better received, right? I okay. have to be working in the product, using the product in order to help them. Now, I can completely understand when someone says, I do this and it doesn't work and it drives me nuts. I'm like, I'm right there with you, <laughs> right? And there's that shared experience. Yes. So uh, what I would tell any colleague looking for this is practice. And it could be in any venue, whether it's hospital, ER, clinic, et cetera, you know, practice. So definitely keep that hat on. That will give you legitimacy with your partners and with your colleagues. The second thing I would tell you is go to school. When I was first involved in this role, my CEO at the time said, 
I said, well, you know, gosh, shouldn't I go and get this degree or get this certificate or get certified in something? And she said, oh, that's not necessary. I think she was trying to do me a favor by saying, oh, you don't need to do that extra work. And in reality, you absolutely should do the extra work. You should go to AMIA, which is the American Medical Informatics Association, and take one of their courses. Those are excellent. I also went with the American Academy of Physician Leaders, the AAPL. So sorry for all the plugs here, but they do some excellent, excellent work. Their courses on leadership are great. Their courses on crucial conversations, of which you will have many, are excellent. Their courses on the business of hospitals, which is hugely helpful to understand why hospitals make the decisions they do. They did some excellent work and their capstone programs were very good. I'm actually going for the, the board review course with AMIA. I think it's this fall, I think it's September. Uh, than sitting for boards, but definitely go through those processes, learn those processes, because you need more than your clinical skills and a can-do attitude. You need some education, and I would encourage you to find it. And there's several good ones I haven't mentioned. I mean, Chime, there are several good organizations now that are set up to help you. I don't think you necessarily have to do a fellowship. Certainly, if all you want to do is informatics, then yes, a fellowship is for you. But I definitely think there's a lot of practicing physicians who have the at least the trust of their colleagues, which is huge, to be able to make some successful inroads or impacts with the community they're in or the community they choose. I, I would say uh, get educated. Yeah, that's great advice. You know, every facility I've worked with or observed that has a CMIO, the value is hard to quantify probably because maybe they're seeing less patients or working less shifts as a hospitalist or whatever it may be. But, you know, everything you've mentioned throughout this podcast is, you know, working towards that integration and, and working as that physician champion to visit with your peers and encourage them and show that empathy with that piece of the system that they may not like. The value of that is maybe hard to put a dollar sign on, but, you know, the organizations that are doing that are having better quality scores and having better overall physician engagement and utilization of their EHR tools and all those things. So that's a great summary and good encouragement for those out there thinking about it. And you will need someone to run your governance. You will need someone to help organize your physicians. You will need buy-in from your colleagues because there are subject matter experts. When we're looking at order sets, I'm not creating these de novo. We, we use our partners, our vendor partners to help us with order sets. But then we go to the docs, we go to the pediatric surgeons and say, what do you want on here, right? And if they know you and they know that this is what you do, you're going to need those people. You cannot continue as an organization to just lean on those who do because that that runs out. That gets harder and harder to give, you know, your time. And I am very fortunate to have an organization that said, no, we want to put time and money into this. It's the right thing to do. And I, I still think it's the right thing to do for many organizations. And if you're a, a small outlying hospital that doesn't necessarily have those resources and you have to lean on your current resources, and I would still encourage those resources to, to educate yourself, to learn, to learn what's out there, you know, to go to one of these meetings because you'll meet colleagues. And that's a great way to learn because colleagues are a great resource, just like is in medicine. It's great to have colleagues you can ask questions of. I was just answering a question from a doc from South Dakota. You know, what are you guys doing with this? And I said, well, this is how we're handling this particular problem. So go to these conferences, go to Muse, go to Chime, go to Hims, meet your colleagues right? Go over your problems because we're all trying to solve very similar problems, right? We're all trying to solve care coordination and 
centralized processes and prior authorizations for imaging or whatnot. So we all have very similar problems and we're all trying to solve them in similar ways. So talk to your colleagues and they can be quite useful. They can be a very good resource for you. You mentioned governance and, you know, having the CMIO be part of that governance structure. As we kind of wrap up here, let's talk about the governance there at Logan. Do you have a physician advisory committee? And if so, is it split between ambulatory and acute? Or is it a combined with subcommittees? Or talk to us a little bit about that high level. It's all the above. So we have an IT steering committee, which has our IT director, our chief financial officer, our head of quality, our chief of medicine, and the various executive physician directors. And that's who makes the major dollar decisions, but they flow up and down, right? So meaning that we have smaller groups of ambulatory and inpatient physician governance that have dyad partners and operations who help them bring things up and also disseminate things out. So both inpatient, outpatient, and then a centralized governance above both of those. And then we still do report to the medical executive committee. It is more of an informatory role, not necessarily a reporting role. We come to them and say, here are the decisions that were made by the IT governance. Because we have such good representation there, we can make those decisions there. You know, not only do we have operations, we have finance, we have quality, we have risk. All those people attend the big governance board. It's interesting, when I first started out, we had a physician advisory. That was it. Just docs, right? And just docs making decisions is like making decisions in a vacuum. Bad idea, right? We have some good ideas and we want to see these things through, but we don't necessarily know how to operationalize them, right? We don't necessarily know what the quality impact will be. We're not sure what the financial impact will be. We needed those other pieces. We needed quality. We needed risk to come on and say, hey, whoa, don't do it that way or consider doing it this way. So risk and quality and, of course, dollars. I mean, now we have our chief financial officer there and he's great to help us. You know, here's what's budgeted. Here's what we can do this fiscal year. Here's what we should put off till next fiscal year. A lot of good moving pieces there. And then you need people to help disseminate that information. You can make all these high up decisions, but then who's going to operationalize them? Who's going to put boots on the ground? Who's going to make changes? So you need a diverse, centralized governance. And then you need under structures for a clinic and hospital and ER to help you to understand what the issues really are, right? And what changes need to be made. How do you all disseminate the information that comes out of the PAC meetings to the provider community at large. That's always a struggle is communicating with providers. Usually you have to try 15 different ways and 15 different times. Then that is exactly true. This will be reported to the medical executive committee and those representatives go to their subcommittees, uh, departments of medicine, surgery, pediatrics, et cetera. And they all have a line item in their monthly meetings of here is the IT update. Because in the beginning, IT was a sub-subheading, and, and now IT is a line item on everybody's agenda. So that's one way we do it. I also get to do road shows where I travel to different departments and different groups and talk about these things. I show up, we have a quarterly med staff that I get to go up and talk with my colleagues about. And then I send out just the best emails <laughs> all the time. And we also have a... Our CMO sends out a monthly, you know, here's the med staff monthly, here's the things that are happening in our organization. And IT always has a, like I said, it used to be a sub subheading. Now it's the line item on everybody's agenda. And then the biggest thing I must say 
We involved operations. And our operations people can very well disseminate information. They go to their office managers who go to their, their respective clinics. They go to leads of different departments and disseminate information, whether through OB or surgery or ICU, et cetera. So, and saying all of that, that's our best effort. The information, we get it out there and it's still, it's still a struggle. Sure. Yep. Secure texting devices, we have secure email, we have the wire, we have all these different instruments, and yet I am constantly bumping into my colleagues in the doctor's lounge and saying, <laughs> hey, remember, hey, remember, you know, do this or fix that or things like that. So, What a great goal to have. You know, I like how you said that. It went from a subcategory to a line item, and that should be the goal for every yeah. organization you know, not just in physician meetings, but having IT be a line item in every meeting, you know. So that was a really neat way to say that. Dr. Tollerson, as we wrap up here, I like to end the podcast with a little, you know, personal note or professional note of something that you're either enjoying or taking part in, or sounds like you're you're working for some education and all different things. It doesn't sound like you have a whole lot of time for a lot of leisure, but but what else do you have going on that you want to share with the <laughs> listeners? Well, you know, if you live in Northwest Montana and you don't get outside, you really are missing something. My wife and I have a little farm and we have lambs coming in the spring. So about four, four to five weeks, we should have our first lambs. And so we're super excited about that. Beyond that, it's, you know, as the spring skiing comes to a close, as the bears wake up, start to go up and get in the park. We were in the park last weekend or last week with some extended family and it's just, it's awesome. You know, That's great. You can't underscore how pretty it is up here. So um, just well, enjoying some life. A site that I was with previously was going to do our site visit at Kalispell out there. And we didn't get to pull it off. And I've been bummed ever since that I didn't get to make it out to that part of the country. But <laughs> it's on my list for sure to get out there. <laughs> It's a beautiful part of the world. If you can come visit, do do make sure if you do decide to come to the park to go on their website first and check it out because there is a ticket system now. You have to have a ticket to get into the park. So just make sure you do that. But it's well worth it. Very cool. Dr. Tollerson, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for all the valuable information and all your benefit that you've given to Muse over the years. And best of luck in all your upcoming go lives and even with the lambs. <laughs> Thanks, DJ. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to Muse Views. Don't forget to rate and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcast fix. And visit museweb.org to join the podcast forum and for information about Muse.